It was the 19th century Scottish preacher, Robert Murray McShane, who said, what a man is on his knees before God is all he is, nothing else. Isn't that a powerful quote? What? what a man is on his knees before God, that he is, and nothing else. Prayer is the heart of one who's been redeemed, and prayer is all over Scripture. It's what the Bible is about, not just spouting words and incantations and clocking your time, those kind of things. But when the Bible starts, you've got a man and God in the garden walking, communing together. And as soon as that fellowship is broken and, and God's in the garden and man is out, God, I say concocts, he reveals anyway this very elaborate, sophisticated plan including a tabernacle and a temple. And the only goal of this thing is that man and God may once again commune, that they may be together. And so throughout the pages of Scripture, you find prayer. I mean, it's on every page of Scripture, I, I believe. You've got, you can pray, of course, sitting down, right, standing up, before you eat, before you sup. You, you pardon my Dr. Seussness, you can pray in a garden on a boat, in a palace near a moat, all alone in a jail, in a crowd, in a whale, all the time, all the time of uh, at the time of prayer, in the middle of the night, when money's much and when money's tight, as a fugitive in a storm, when life is good, when forlorn, as a king, as a beast, as a leper, as a priest, as a queen, the entire city for very broad or for the nitty gritty. The Bible is filled with, with people praying. And what it, it lets us know is in every circumstance you find in Scripture, every posture you find in Scripture, every situation, every socioeconomic group, every time you find in Scripture, what that tells us is that there is no circumstance we might find ourselves in, none in which we cannot, should not pray. Some of the most loved passages of Scripture are prayers. Think of the book of Psalms, longest book in the Bible. It's prayers put to music. You've got Nehemiah praying fast and furious, right? You know, short, quick. You've got Daniel, elongated and elegant type of prayers. You've got Elisha knocking out the prophets of Baal with a very short prayer. You've got Solomon dedicating the temple with a very long prayer. You've got Jesus beating down the devil in a, with, with a prayer retreat, basically. The Apostle Paul tells us that we can take on the forces of hell with the weapon of prayer. Solomon uh, Samuel takes it a step further in 1 Samuel 12, 23, when he says this. He says, moreover, as for me, you got, yeah, I love the way he says this, far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray. What, what? Sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray. David says, I am a man of prayer. We think of David as the mighty giant killer and all these other things, but he wants us to know him as a man of prayer. Uh, you know, the, the early church, Acts 1, 14, 2, 42, says that they consistently devoted themselves to 
prayer. Apostle Paul, of course, was a prayer rock star. We would expect Jesus to be a man of prayer, and he was. You know, he starts his whole ministry in the garden praying. He ends his ministry on the cross praying. Scripture says that he ever lives to pray. That's what he's doing right now for us. The whole time in between in his his life, he's praying. He gets stays up all night praying before he, he selects his apostles. He's often find, found in Scripture sneaking away from ministry and people, and their apostles are looking for him. Where did Jesus go? Well, he's off praying someplace else. And it was normal for him. Now, very few prayers of Jesus, I don't know if you've noticed this, very few are actually recorded in Scripture. I, I think that's because either A, they're too intimate, it's him and his father, or B, they're too complex beyond us, it's the Trinity, you know, communicating interpersonally. Um, that's why John 17 is so, so amazing. Because it's the, the longest prayer of Jesus recorded that we have in Scripture. It's, 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 and if you just think about this, it blows your mind. You've got the second person of the Trinity talking to the first person of, of the Trinity. And what do they say? How, how does, how does that work? You know, listen to what John MacArthur says about John 17. He says that this prayer plunges the readers into the unfathomable depths of the inter-Trinitarian communication between the Father and the Son, and the scope encompasses the entire sweep of redemptive history from election to glorification, including the themes of regeneration, revelation, illumination, sanctification, and preservation. The veil is drawn back, and the reader is escorted by Jesus Christ into the Holy of Holies, to the very throne of God. There's just no other chapter in the Bible like John 17. Now, I, I know we've been taught the Lord's Prayer, right? Uh, we, we, all, we, we think we know the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. But see, that's not the Lord's Prayer. That's the disciples' prayer. Jesus could never pray that prayer. Think about this. Forgive us our debts. Could Jesus, Jesus could not pray this. They said, teach us to pray. Jesus said, all right, when you pray, say this. This, that was the disciples' prayer. John 17, that's the Lord's prayer. And so, so we find here really holy ground that we are, are, are treading on. Now, here's the deal. I'm excited about this study. This is a multiple week study. And I'm excited to it for, for, for a couple of reasons. First of all, I guarantee you, if you come, and I hope, hope you do, uh, with God's word, you're, you're ready to study, I guarantee you your theological cages will be rattled. There'll be some things you're going to be going, what? And you're going to be scratching your head and you're not going to be sure. There are going to be some things that are just going to flat out push you into a, a corner of, of awe. I, 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 you're just not going to know how to address that. You've got God talking to God. Uh, if we study, as we study John 17, I think we, we understand the depths of Jesus' heart in, in, a, in a much clearer way. We, we understand as we study John 17, some of the inner working. It gives us a glimpse into the, the Trinity it, itself which will revolutionize and radically transform your life. I can't imagine us doing John 17 and getting through it not having our worship purified. And, and here's the hope even this morning, that it, it seems to impact our own prayer life. When I was a freshman at Moody, I came across John 17. I read this thing through. 
And it made an indelible stamp in my own prayer life, even to this day. And so that's what I, I, I'm trusting is where it will, where it will uh, take us. Now, if you got your Bibles or you got it on your device, open up John chapter 17 and we're going to dig right in. Now, as we're, we're looking, let me give you just, we, it's in context, right? It's in a context. There's stuff that happens before it and after it. Incredibly important that we know what those things are. Incredibly important if we're going to understand the chapter. What happens after, as soon as he's done praying this, as soon as he's done praying this, 18.1, it says that when, when he had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden which he and his disciples enter, entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. So Jesus, as soon as he finishes this prayer, he's going into Gethsemane, right? Now we know about Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane. We've seen this. We've been in Good Friday services. We've been in Sunday School Church our whole life. So we understand Jesus is praying in Gethsemane. And Luke tells us he prayed in agony. And Luke says he was so intense that he was sweating drops of blood. That's a pretty intense. And we, we, we see Jesus wrestling in prayer. But you need to know. you got, you got to read that in light of John 17. Just a few steps before he gets there. He's praying John 17. Where he's calm, where he's peaceful, where you, you, you got, you got to put those two side by side. When you read, when you read Gethsemane, you got to read John 17 into it. Now, 17.1, it says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, now, 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 spoken these words. What words? Again, now we're backing up a little bit. About one week before this, Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, right? It's what we celebrate is Palm Sunday. And according to the Sanhedrin, all of Jerusalem, which has swelled huge with, with the tourists, uh, pilgrims, all of Jerusalem uh, is lauding Jesus. So they have a Jesus parade about a week before this. Jesus had never allowed this before. And all of Jerusalem, according to the Sanhedrin, is there. And they're all chanting, no, Jesus, Jesus. Because they know this is our Messiah. They've seen him rise people from the dead and they, and, and walk on water. They've seen all kinds of goofy things and, and they believe this is the Messiah. And so they're like, yes, he's our king. He's our Messiah, Jesus. And so you can imagine the apostles are kind of like high-fiving and they're like, like feeling pretty good. All right. You know, I wish he would have revealed himself, you know, a few months earlier, but okay, this is going to work. And everyone's fine. And his popularity in the polls was like 99.9%. And he just was, it was, it was just fantastic any day now. And then he, he hangs out in Jerusalem a week, offends a couple of people, but that's all. And then what happens right before this is, is Jesus and his apostles go into the upper room for that last supper. And that's like John 13 through 17. That's called the upper room discourse or the farewell discourse. And Jesus says this around the front end. He says, I have intensely desired to eat this meal with you. Now, now, he hasn't said anything like that before. Why did he intensely desire? He was just very hungry, I guess. No, 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 no. He's got nothing to do with his hunger. He knows that night he's going to Gethsemane. And he knows that all of his apostles, their world is going to go upside down really soon. And so this is his last chance to teach them, to prepare them. This, he's, and isn't it fascinating? He knows he's just steps away from the cross. I earnestly desire this, Jesus says. There's, there's depth 
There's huge depth here. By the way, sidetrack, just so you know, as we get into John 17 over the next few weeks, this is not pablum stuff. You know, some folk, uh, a good message is if you make them cry and you make them laugh and you get out on time, and it, that's a good message. See, that's, uh, unfortunately, that's what we say sometimes. That was, a, that was a great message. That's not what John 17, that's not where we're going to be. Uh, hopefully we won't be terribly boring, but we're going to be digging deep, man. We're going to be, we're going to be going into recesses of theology and understanding that, how many series have you ever heard on John 17? A lot of folk don't go this way. So Jesus gets up there with his disciples. He starts off by washing their feet. Now they're kind of humiliated by this for themselves and for Jesus because the Messiah, Jesus, ought not to be washing anybody's feet. But okay, they go through that. And then Jesus sits all these guys down. And again, they're all pumped and excited. That foot washing thing kind of threw them a little bit. But they're still, they're, they're still fine. And then Jesus says, y'all, tonight one of you will betray me. Tonight. And they said, what? He says, it's not only that, Peter, you're going to deny me tonight three times. And not only that, all of you guys are going to abandon me tonight. And what are you talking about? And then he says this, he says, and not only that, you need to understand something. I'm going away. And they said, no, 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 wait, 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 what are you talking about? You're going away. Don't you remember the crowds? Jesus, you can't be going away. You're putting up the kingdom. It's, it's happening right now. And Jesus, no, 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 no. This has been planned. I want you to know it's not a spur of the moment deal. It's been planned. And I'm going away. But I want you to know something. I'm not going to just leave you here by yourself. I'm going to send somebody. It's the Holy Spirit, right? And, and he says, not only that, I want you to know that, that, the work is not done. It's just starting for you guys. Remember when I called you and I said, I'm going to follow me and I will teach you to be fishers of men? Well, training's done. Start fishing from this point on. Go. And he says, not, you need to understand this. The Father has promised me that you will bear fruit, fruit that will remain. And this is going to be great. And then all they can hear, though, at this point is, is Jesus is saying he's going to be, be gone. And he says, this, you need to know this, too, as you're, as you're bearing fruit. The enemy's not going to let that just happen. And there's going to be some conflict, and y'all are going to face some pretty tough things. But you need to know this. There's going to be joy like you've never experienced before, ever. And you would not have this kind of joy if I didn't go away. And there's, you're going to have peace like, like, like you would never imagine. But you're not going to have this peace unless I go away. And you need to know, y'all, you're going to win. Even though I'm not right here with you physically. And you need to know this, too. One day, I'll come back. Well, you can imagine. These guys are reeling. They, they didn't see this coming. What is this about? What? And then, after, when Jesus spoke in these words, those were the words. And then he prays. And this is amazing because, again, most of his prayers aren't recorded. When he prays to the Father, it's private, man. It's just God, God, Jesus and the Father, and they go off on their own. But here, he wants it, I'm going to say it in earshot of these guys. He wants it recorded because he knows what's in this prayer. It's going, they need this. It's going to change them. It's going to grow them. It's going to empower them. We need this. And so he prays. He says, Father, the hour 
has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. <clears throat> the hour has come. What does he mean by that? Well, throughout John, uh, five times actually, people have tried to push Jesus to reveal himself or... <laughs> But his hour didn't come. In John chapter 2, I'll give you an example. Mary, his mom, who knows who Jesus is, right? Remember the angel and you're a virgin and then his name will be called Jesus and he'll, he'll save his people from their sins. She knows who this is. And so as soon as he starts his public ministry, Mary's going, all right, this is the time. Reveal yourself to these people. Let's get the show moving. But in John 2, this is what Jesus says. Woman, what does this have to do with, with me? My hour has not yet come. And then Jesus gets in some trouble in John 7. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him. Now why? Because he was faster than those guys, because he snuck out, because he put on a, a disguise. No, 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 no. Because they were weak, because they didn't want to? No, because his hour had not come. Jesus is in 100% control of this. Next chapter says the words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because, Why? His hour had not yet come. In John 12, this is, he's praying. Look what he says. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. But for this purpose, for this hour, I, I've come. I've come to this hour. And then he gets in John 17. He says, the hour has come. Now, what's he talking about? What hour? What's an hour? He's talking about his crucifixion. He knows that he's going to, next, next few steps, he's going to get into the garden and then the guards come and it's, it, it kicks in at that point. There's no going back. The hour has come. It's time. So glorify your son that the son may glorify you. What does it mean to glorify? It's a good, <clears throat> to glorify is to, uh, Make splendid, it's to bring about splendor, majesty, uh, it's to honor. <clears throat> when, it, it's, if you're a God, it's to be seen for who you really are. Look at Exodus 33. Remember this, Moses is talking to God. And, and Moses says, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, but you cannot see my face. God's equating face and glory. For man shall not see me and live. You ever try to talk to somebody, and the time, the time you're talking, they're, going, they're doing this. Oh. I mean, you know, it's like, you know what? Just forget it. You got, you got a thousand piece puzzle going on in your head. I'm just one piece, and just forget it. That's why you get home, your toddler, they know what they're doing, because they grab your face, and they hold it, and they stare your eyes. You know, no, no, no. They want a hundred percent. They want you distracted with anything else. They want a hundred percent. What Moses is saying is, God, I, I want you one hundred percent. I want to see you a hundred percent of who you are. I want to see all of what you're about, not cloaked in any way, shape, or form. And God's saying, Oh, Moses. I mean, it's like, you know, a gazillion times brighter than the, the sun. If you were to look at me, I'm a pure holiness. You couldn't handle it. It would kill you. You're fallen, broken. It would kill you. Therefore, in the text, he lets Moses see part of his glory, but not full, full force. And so Jesus has got this, this, this glory. Um, 
that he that he's asking for. Glorify me. Look at no. Let's see if I can f- find this. Seventeen five. Check this out. This is this is a great this is a great great this whole chapter is great. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. If, if, if hear anybody who says, "Oh, Jesus was just a man," and Jesus just thought he was simply a man, and you Christians have put words in his mouth, just check this this verse alone out. What are you talking about? The glory that I had with you before the world existed. What is that? John 1, 1. Look what John says. In the beginning was the Word. He's talking about Jesus. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. This is Jesus. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. They saw part of his glory when he walked on water. What did they say? Who is this guy? When he, when, when he, when he clobbered the, the demons and cast the demons out, what did they say? Who is this guy that the demons listen to him? I mean, they saw part of his glory. But you need to know, Jesus had his glory shielded. Uh, I think it's uh, Philippians. Here we go. Cool, cool text. And you got to understand the problem. Don't, don't get into the screen too much. Understand the problem. God's glory, which Jesus had before the world began. God didn't have lots of it. God the Father, whole lots of it. Jesus, you know, just kind of a little bit of it. Equal in glory, right? So Jesus, hyper-magnificent. But if Jesus came to earth, hyper-magnificent, everybody would be dead who saw him, but yet he's got to interact with people. They have to see him. So what is he supposed to do? Philippians 2, have this mind in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. He set aside his glory, at least portions of it, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. Jesus, when he came, really was man, a Hundred percent man, but yet on one hand it was hand it was a disguise because he had to cloak, he had to limit, he had to hide because it was glory. If it was full orbed, would kill everybody. So he came as a man. He was okay with that, and that's why he says, "Restore to me the glory I had with you before the world began." If you want to see what's Jesus was really in his glory. Get to Revelation 1. Uh, It's it's amazing. So he's he's asking for that to be restored. Isaiah 53, verse 2. Talking about Jesus, 700 years before Jesus. But he says, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He says, prophets looking forward saying, when the Messiah comes, he's not going to look like God. He's going to look like your average normal Joe. There's really nothing special in his, his, his glory is shielded. It's, it's hid is what he's, what he's, what he's, what he's saying. Now, back to 17, 1 and 2. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son 
that the Son may glorify you. You know, this is the only request in this whole prayer. This is the only request Jesus makes for himself. Think about this. Think He's on his way to Gethsemane. I can imagine crucifixion is not going to feel real good, but a whole lot worse than that. He gets the Father's wrath. He becomes the sin of the world. We can't even imagine that. I'd be praying for all kinds of stuff here. The only prayer he asks for himself is glorify your Son. And notice the reason. That, in order that, the Son may glorify you. I want to be glorified sometimes. I'd like glory. That'd be cool. Not necessarily that. I might glorify somebody else. You know, just the, <clears throat> that's what you got to do. Okay. That's not where Jesus is, is, is at. We got to think about the Trinity for a minute. <laughs> And as we think about the Trinity, again, that's one of those things that kind of blows your mind, and a lot of times Christians just bypass that one because they just assume that's too crazy. The Trinity. We believe in one God, eternally existing, eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, co-equal in, in power, in attributes, in, in glory. And let me tag a phrase on here, okay, because this phrase makes a big difference. Mutually glorifying and loving each other. That kind of colors the Trinity just a little bit different. If you notice in your text, Jesus is praying the Father glorifies him so that Jesus can glorify the Father. And in John 16, it says the Holy Spirit's not seeking glory for himself. He wants to glorify the Son. And so what you've got from eternity, say with me, from eternity past, you've got Father, Son, and Holy Spirit glorifying, adoring each other and honoring each other and, and attributing majesty to each other from eternity past. And why do they do this? Because, get this, because of love. Okay, check this out. 17, if you look at your Bibles, verses 23, 24, look what it says. Jesus prays that the believers will be one, will be unified, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Okay, look at what he says. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me, that where I am, to see my glory. He wants his followers to see him full, his full-orbed glory. They hadn't seen that before. That you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Long before God loved the world, he loved his son. God loved the world? Yes, he did. Did he love you more than his son? No, never. Never. Next next text. Check this out. John 14. Jesus is talking and he says, But I do as the Father has commanded me. He's going to do as the Father commanded me. He's going to go to the cross. He's going to die. Why? Because I'm so deeply in love with the world. So that the world may know that I love the Father. Does Jesus love you? Absolutely he loves you. But primarily he loves the Father. You know what drove him to the cross? If I can say this again, we're, we're, in, we're, in, we're in holy ground here. What drove him to the cross more so than a love for us, a love for his father. His father told him to do this absolutely. So, so what you've got in eternity 
past. You've got Father, Son, Holy Spirit adoring each other, pure, uh, giving each other majesty, loving each other deeply. We think, why in the world did God create the world? We think, oh, because he was lonely, he needed someone to love. No, 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 no. He had in the Trinity perfect love. I mean, per- perfect. Inv- Can you imagine being in an environment where no one's getting their feelings hurt? Where no one's insecure, where no one's saying anything stupid, where there's no insensitive stuff, where there's no selfish motivation, where there's no jealousy or bitterness or pokey days, or all of that is, is gone, where it's 100% pure love, where the other person is first, where, where no one is fighting for the last piece for themselves, but everything is for the other person continuously. This is the environment you've got going on in, in, in eternity past. Now think about this for a minute. If in fact there was just one God, we didn't have Trinity, we didn't have Trinity. God was, 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 uh, it's a unit, unit God, not a tri, triune God. That means that God doesn't love, because love's a relational term. God does not love until creation. Which means, from eternity past, you can be God and not love. <clears throat> but that's not our God. Maybe this is why the Bible says God is love. Maybe this is why Paul says that if I speak in the tongues of angels but don't have love, I'm just noise. He says, and if I've got all religiosity and all faith and all knowledge, but if I don't have love, I'm nothing. Maybe this is why Jesus is going to say, I give you a new commandment. This one summarizes and fills up all of them, that you love one another. <laughs> maybe. Maybe this is why John's going to end up saying, if you say you love God whom you haven't seen, but you don't love your brother whom you have seen, you're lying. Maybe this is why Jesus would say, by this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Because love was the basic building block of the Trinity. You see this, the church is supposed to resemble this. We got a long way to go, don't we? But, but the church is supposed to re- resemble this. This was his, his goal in building this community that would look and reflect the, the, the community that he's a part of. This is his, this is his desire. This is what, it, this is what he's about. But, but people say, well, he created us because he needed someone to love. He needed community. What kind of community did we give him? Do we give him? Betrayal, denial, disobedience, neglect, misrepresentation. That's, a, that's on our, like on our good days, right? I mean, he did not, he, need, we, he had everything. He did, we give him nothing. We give him nothing. Und, understand this straight. Now, now, where it's interesting, verse, verse 4, John 17, verse 4. Jesus says, I glorified you on earth. And look, how does he glorify the Father? Having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. I think he's looking ahead here. But what is the work that God gave him to do? Verse 2. Since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. God the Father gave Jesus the job. Jesus, you need to secure eternal life for the followers. That's your job. And so Jesus says, that's what I'm going for. So Jesus is going to secure eternal life for the followers. How do we secure eternal life? You, you know the context, right? He just told them, I'm leaving, I'm going to the cross. He's getting ready to go to Gethsemane. He knows what's going to be happening there. 
the way to give them eternal life, to secure eternal life, is through the cross. And check this out in, in Philippians. Philippians 2. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, right? We read that. Therefore, because dying on the cross, because of that, therefore, God has highly exalted him. That's glorification. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name. That's glorification. So that the name of Jesus, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That's glorification. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus is being glorified. But why? To the glory of God the Father. You you, you see this. If there's no cross, you need to know this. There's no salvation. Just because these guys, Peter, just because they followed Jesus, if there's no cross, they're not, they're not saved. There's no, we're, according to 1 Corinthians 15, our being here this morning, we're to be pitied among everybody else if there's no cross. If there's no cross, the world doesn't know the name of Jesus. If there's no cross, the, the beasts aren't, aren't bowing down and the saints aren't throwing their, their crowns before him. If, if, if there's no cross, there's, there's no glory. For Jesus. But because Jesus, isn't, this is just like God, isn't it? He takes the, the worst thing we've got, the world can throw at anybody. The cross, shame, humiliation, pain, hate. And he turns it into the supreme picture of glory. Where because Jesus goes through that, we've got hope secured in heaven. we got complete forgiveness because of, of Jesus. The Father is, is glorified because of Jesus there. And so, and so, so in verse two, when Jesus says, glorify your son, that your son may glorify you, I think this is what he's saying. I think he's saying, Father, I'm getting ready to go to the cross. And I'm asking, that my sacrifice is acceptable to you. I'm, I'm, I'm doing the work you've called me to do, and it's the only thing that's going to secure eternal uh, life for your followers. And through it, I'll receive the glory. You'll receive glory. And so I'm asking that you will help my life glorify you. Now, just think about this for a second. Jesus asked one request for himself in this whole prayer. He's getting ready to die and go through who knows what for us. He's got one request, though. Would you help my life glorify you? That's, that's amazing. This is humanly possible, by the way. This isn't just Jesus. Philippians 1.20, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, Christ will be glorified in my body, whether by life or by death. He says, I've got one goal, that Christ is glorified. My goal is not my comfort. My goal is not my, my material stuff. My goal is not my prestige. My only goal, I don't care if I live. I don't care if I die. My only goal is that Christ has glorified my life. So here's the deal. Let me ask. When you pray for yourself, what do you pray for? 
And I'm not saying that we shouldn't pray for other things that come in in life. We could, we could find texts. We go there. Absolutely, we should. But, but at its base, I'm not talking about saying these kind of words because this is the kind of thing good Christians say, and so I should probably pray this. No, no. When, when, it, when it's raw, when it just kind of comes out, what do you pray for for you? Because that, prayer is not the language of memory. It's the language of your, your heart. And when you're raw and it just comes out, you know what? That's where your heart really is. And so let me ask you, where is your heart when you pray for you? What is your chief prayer request? Because unless it's this, God, I, I, I want to reflect the Trinity. I just want to glorify and love you. Whatever, whatever it takes, whatever it is, however that works then you know what? He will answer that prayer. That's a prayer he wants to answer. And your life will. Um, Elizabeth Prentice, um, she was, my understanding is, she was a, a, a funny uh, little gal, lived in the late 1800s. She, she much preferred to shine at home than in society. Uh, she was a, a deeply devoted Christ follower. You need to also know this, though. She was an invalid. She wanted to do for him, but it wasn't working most of the time. Her body was not letting her, we're not cooperating. You need to also know that she lost two children at a young age. She, she was acquainted with, with grief. And you know, you've met people where grief can just turn you into a bitter who knows what. And she wrote my favorite hymn that I, I've, I've, my favorite hymn for the last three decades maybe. More love, O Christ, to thee is the hymn. <laughs> Let me mention it to you. It says, more love, it's a prayer. More love, O Christ, to thee, more love to thee. Hear thou this prayer I make on bended knee. This is my earnest plea. More love, O Christ, to thee, more love to thee. She's got one plea that I would love you more. That I would glorify him. Would you, would you, would you help me get there? That thirst to know him. Second verse. She says, um, once earthly joy I craved, sought peace and rest. This is life. But now, thee alone I seek. Give what is best. This all my prayer shall be. More love, O Christ, to thee. More love to thee. Third verse. She wrote this, but most hymnals won't have it. They, they pull it out. It's too offensive. I love this verse. She says, let sorrow do its work. Send grief and pain. Can you pray, send grief and pain? You pray that? Sweet are thy messengers. Sweet their refrain when they can sing with me. More love, O Christ, to thee. Do what it takes, God. And then her last verse, she says, Then shall my latest breath whisper thy praise. This be the parting cry my lips shall raise. Still all my prayer shall be more love, O Christ, to thee. Wow. Wow. There's a lot, and we're going to uncover much of it in the next few weeks. But just stopping there. What do I pray for, Harris, when you pray? What do you pray for for others when you pray? Lord, may the primary 
request from my heart, from the hearts of your people, be that you, Lord Jesus, would be glorified in our lives, whether by life or by death. Whatever it takes, send whatever you need to to send, Lord, that when this world looks at the way we deal with it and the way we respond to it and the way we have a relationship with things and how we handle hurt, when they see how we respond, oh, Lord Jesus, may you be glorified. May they see you more they hadn't even thought of. I would pray that that would be so. And God it reminds, I'm often reminded when I walk in this place and I look at the, the bricks and the carpeting and I think of the sacrifices folk had to make over the years that we might be here, I do want to say thank you. And I pray that the offering that we receive even right now would, would even match their heart, Lord, that it would go forth to, to spell your glory to this, this watching world. In Jesus' name, amen.